morning, Severn. Happy New Year. As it's a new year, I figured what better time than now to begin a new series. And so today we are beginning a series out of Matthew's Gospel account titled The One We've Waited For. So before we get into it, let me kind of lay the groundwork for the series and help you understand uh, what to expect. Anybody that reads through the New Testament, start to finish, will immediately be confronted by the fact that there are four different biographies of Jesus' life that we call the gospel accounts, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while those accounts are harmonious in the sense that they contain no contradictions with each other, they are remarkably unique and distinct in the things that they choose to include and emphasize. And it begs the question, especially if you're reading through the Bible for the first time or seriously reading through it for the first time, begs the question, why? Why why do we have four different looks at Jesus? And the answer is that those four accounts were written with four different audiences in mind. Just kind of give you like a brief overview here. So it's generally accepted that Mark wrote his gospel primarily to Romans, who, as you're probably aware, were the people in charge in Jesus' day, the Roman Empire. And so Romans, as the leaders, were, were primarily interested. They were very pragmatic. They were interested in leadership and action, and Mark's gospel reflects that. Uh, it's, it's a very direct gospel account. It is, by a wide margin, the shortest gospel account because it contains very little teaching about Jesus or even teaching by Jesus. It just tells you what Jesus did, which the Roman mind would really appreciate. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, was written to Greeks. And Greeks uh, were actually still influenced by their influence today, Greeks really valued things like beauty and culture and wisdom and ideas and logic and reasoning. And so again, Luke's gospel account reflects that. And literally in the opening verses of, uh, of Luke, you can see that, that his gospel is, among other things, it's designed to show the reader that Christianity, first off, is intellectually satisfying as it's based on historical events that literally took place and have been corroborated by eyewitness accounts And furthermore, that Christianity is a way of life that when it takes root in a person, it leads to a truly beautiful way of life. Luke is unique in that regard. John, on the other hand, if you specifically, if you compare it to to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is kind of in in its own league. And most people will, will, will tell you something like John's aim is to present sort of a global picture of Christianity and a savior in Jesus that is a savior for all ethnic groups. You see this plain as day in the most famous verse in John, uh, which also happens to be one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. But today, as I said, we're starting a series out of Matthew. And Matthew wrote his account for people specifically who had a a fairly robust understanding of the Old Testament, either people who were Jewish or people who were kind of enmeshed in Judaism but were considering Christianity. That's why Matthew's gospel account contains all kind of Old Testament references. And if you were here in in, uh, November and December, you know that Matthew actually begins his account with a genealogy of Jesus that um, shows that Jesus is a physical descendant of the Israelite King David, which, again, wouldn't have meant anything to you unless you had an understanding of who David was in the Old Testament. And so what Matthew does in his gospel account, all through it, 
is he aims to show you that Jesus Christ is the one that the entire Old Testament leaves us kind of longing for and looking for and waiting for. And so I thought this was a great book to start the year in because, as you know, New Year's is a time for resolutions. Uh, New Year's is a, a specific time of year. Even if you're not like a resolution person, you have probably already been thinking about the changes that you want to make or you have to make or you need to make in order to get what it is that you're looking for. We just have a tendency to think about that, you know, in the, in the new year. And, uh, and Ma- Matthew, all through his gospel account, <clears throat> is writing to show you that Jesus Christ is the one that you're looking for, whether you realize it or not. He writes to show you that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself is the answer to the deepest questions and problems that mankind has. Jesus Christ himself Uh, is the fulfillment of the deepest longings and desires that mankind has, and the plot lines of our lives will only find resolution in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I don't know what you're doing from now until Easter, but I'd like to cordially invite you uh, to this series to allow Matthew to introduce you to Jesus, the one we've waited for. I'm in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they'd seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's word. So we're picking up right where we left off on Christmas Eve. Christmas obviously is all about the birth of Jesus. And this account in Matthew, uh, sometimes called the journey of the wise men or the journey of the magi, takes place right after that. And uh, although it's a really famous account that's depicted in you know, all the nativity scenes you saw this, this past Christmas. It's a story that I suspect not many people have spent a great deal of time actually studying deeply. And I think the first question that comes to mind when you look at this story is, is this a his- historical, literal account of things that actually took place, or is this kind of a legend that's meant to be more or less allegorized? Because, to be fair, uh, it certainly has aspects in it that sound like a legend, you know, these, these wise men from this mysterious place in the east, seeing a star in the sky that leads them to, 
you know, the, the newborn baby Jesus. It sounds legendary, but just before we get to, to the, uh, the body of our message today, I'm just going to give you three reasons. I think it's completely reasonable to believe that this uh, uh, account is something that literally historically took place. First and foremost, we know that in the ancient world, uh, it was generally believed that a star's appearance, there would be some kind of uh, happening in the skies that would announce either the arrival or the departure of a great king. We know that ancient people thought that way. I'm not going to get into why. If you want to ask me after the service, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but that's how they thought. Secondly, we also know that there was a widespread rumor in this day and age, not just among Jewish people, but all over the place in the ancient world. We know it from a number of secular historians that were not Jesus followers, that many people in the ancient world believed that a great ruler would arise specifically from the region of Judea. So they were kind of looking for it. But thirdly, and I think this is most interesting, we know that a very peculiar celestial event took place specifically in the year that Matthew's talking about here. Obviously, with our knowledge of how planets move, we can go back in time and know exactly when different celestial events happened. And three separate times during the year Matthew's talking about here, something called a conjunction took place between Jupiter and Saturn. It's basically when the two planets so closely aligned that they resembled a great, brilliant star. Uh, And so I'm saying this to say it's perfectly... Um, consistent that the wise men in this story, who were basically just ancient astronomers, would see what they saw in the east and being conditioned to think, okay, stars announced the birth of a king and we've heard there's supposed to be one out of Judea, makes perfect sense that they would have seen what they saw in the sky and then made the journey to Jerusalem. The question, however, is, why is Matthew telling us this? Gospel writers are remarkably selective. I mean, at the end of John's gospel, he says, if I told you everything Jesus did, if I told you the whole story, the libraries of the world wouldn't contain it. So all of the gospel writers were incredibly selective in the stories that they included in their specific accounts. The question is, why does Matthew want to tell us this? Let me just zoom out from here and and ask you to consider something. This story uh, is about these wise men who represent the absolute pinnacle of of the wisdom of the world, of human wisdom in their day. It's about these wise men seeking out, finding, and ultimately bowing down before Jesus. The reason that a story like this is included, specifically at the beginning of this gospel account, is to show us that Jesus Christ is the wisdom, the ultimate wisdom of God, before which the wisdom of this world ultimately and inevitably bowels. That's what this story is about. And so what I want to do in our time together is just pull out three ideas, and we'll end with communion, but, but three, three ideas that sort of compare and contrast the wise men representing the wisdom of the world and Jesus Christ that the New Testament calls the ultimate expression of the wisdom of God. So first off, what we see in this story is, and this will be our first idea today, number one, This is showing us that the wisdom of the world is incomplete. Let me read the first two verses again. It says, And Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the the days of King Herod. Pardon me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating about this story, and you've got to really pay attention to see it, is that we're, we're being told here that the wise men, through their arts, they were able to arrive at the conclusion that there was a king. 
but they were not able to find out exactly where that king was or who that king was until it was revealed to them in Scripture. Right, I was in a kind of like an unofficial play in high school where I was um, assigned the role of one of the wise men. And uh, a good friend of mine, who will remain nameless but does attend this church, uh, had to dress up as the star. And I remember he who will remain nameless, man, I could just wreck his whole life right now. I have that kind of power, but restraining myself. He led us through all these obstacles and, and like around these different things until he finally brought us to the, the stable. And that makes for, I guess, a fairly entertaining play. However, that's just not what the Bible teaches, unfortunately. If you really read what Matthew's telling us here, he tells us uh, that the, the wise men, when they saw this star appear in, in the east, they simply put it together, given how they were conditioned to think that a ruler would arise from Jerusalem. So it's not that this star, you know, literally, you know, told them to turn left and go straight for point or whatever, anything like that. They just put two and two together. And when they got to Jerusalem, they started asking around, okay, where's this king that the star has, has made known to us? When Herod hears about that, he's deeply unsettled, deeply insecure is how we should read that. And so what he does in this story is he immediately consults some Hebrew scholars who were well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, otherwise known as the Old Testament. The, the chief priests and the scribes consult the Old Testament, and they find a prophecy that's quoted in this passage. It's actually out of Micah that says that a great ruler would come out of specifically the town of Bethlehem. I say all this to say the star ultimately did not lead the wise men to Jesus. The scripture did. Now, what this is, I'd I, I put this before you. What the story's getting across is this idea, follow me here, that the wisdom of the world can only take you so far. Uh, you, need something, you need something greater in order to take you home. The wisdom of the world, as it did with the wise men here, can get you to the point where you realize there must be a king. There has to be the king. There is a king out there, but it takes something further, something greater to take you home. Let me state this one more way, and then I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate it. The wisdom of the world can get you and I to the point where we realize our need, but it cannot meet that need on its own. All right, let me give you two examples of this to kind of illustrate it, one from literature and then one specifically from the Bible. Uh, so I wouldn't really call this a resolution, but I did make a decision this year that I wanted to, and maybe it is a resolution and I'm just too insecure to admit that I made one. Maybe I just need to be honest with myself. I made a resolution this year. I'm going to read, um, I'm going to focus specifically on classic literature. Never really done that in my life, and I like to kind of aim at a genre. And so I just completed my first book in that vein. Uh, you may have heard of it before, To Kill a Mockingbird. Great book. The 9 a.m. actually applauded To Kill a Mockingbird. A little idolatrous, if you ask me, all right? Uh, but I did. I felt, completely fell in love with the book, and I'm legitimately concerned that I set the bar too high because of how much I appreciated that book. Uh, but I want to I share an exchange uh, from that book with you that I think perfectly illustrates the point that I'm trying to make here. Before I do a little bit of background, and I promise you, I will not ruin the story. I'm not that kind of guy. It's cardinal sin. One of the major themes of To Kill a Mockingbird is the theme of, of uh, justice and specifically racism. And the story is told from the point of view of a, she, she's an elementary school-aged girl named Scout, and she has an older brother just a few years older than her named Jem, and as they come of age, they're beginning to notice racism in the hearts 
and in the lives of some of the people that live in their community, the fictional town of, of Macomb County, uh, Alabama, and they're trying to make sense of it. Now, I want to I just read this exchange to you because I think it, it, it illustrates a point that Scripture makes both in Old and New Testament. So first off, this is Jem speaking. He says, you know something, Scout? I've got it all figured out. He's uh, probably at middle school right now, and like every other middle schooler on the planet, has arrived at omniscience. You know something, Scout? I've got it all figured out now. I've thought about it a lot lately, and I've got it figured out. There are four kinds of folks in the world. And he goes on, um, and, he, and he explains in his own imperfect way how everybody in their county you know, fits into these four categories. And his younger sister, Scout, pushes back on him and kind of pokes holes in his theory, and she says, no, nah, Jim, I think there's just one kind of folks. Folks. And Jem answers, and he says, that's what I thought too when I was your age, which was like two years prior to this. He says, that's what I thought too when I was your age. But then listen to what he says, because the author's making a point here, and it's a profound one. He says, if there's just one kind of folks, why can't they get along with each other? If they're all alike, why do they go out of their way to despise each other? Scout, I think I'm beginning to understand something. I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley has stayed shut up in the house all this time. Boo Radley is their shut-in neighbor who's very mysterious and they, they don't know much about him. He says, I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley has stayed shut up in the house all this time. It's because he wants to stay inside. Now, the author, Harper Lee, is making a pretty profound point there, and the point is that, that even, even a prepubescent adolescent child that looks out into the world and pays attention will arrive at the conclusion that there is something deeply wrong with the human heart. There's something about the way that we treat each other. There's something about the way that we divide and we form into groups and we seek to kind of marginalize or disrespect or dehumanize another group of people. You see this in every single civilization where, where mankind has ever dwelt. There's something about the human heart that just can't be easily explained, let alone resolved, by human reasoning or human effort or human wisdom. And again, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because that's basically the point that Matthew's making here, that the wisdom of the world can get you to the point where you realize there's something that we need, but it can't meet that need. I'll give you one more example, and this one's from the Bible. In, uh, in Acts chapter 17, this has always really stood out to me, Paul is taking the gospel to the ancient city of Athens, and when he gets there, he, he discovers that the, the city is absolutely littered with idolatry. It's got temples, it's got idols, it's got altars everywhere you look. But in and among all of those altars, Paul came across an altar that was titled to the unknown God. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. Athens was kind of the seat of, of great ideas. It was, the, it was the Ivy League of the Roman Empire and, and really of the ancient world. It's where all the greatest minds congregated and discussed, and it's where ideas that would go on to shape the way that you know, humanity thought found their origin. The fact that the, the, the ancient city of Athens had to have an altar to the unknown God, it's basically that culture's way of saying, we just can't shake this nagging suspicion, this nagging awareness that there's a God out there above and beyond the gods that we've made with our own hands. Now, it's, it's an altar to an unknown God, meaning they couldn't exactly identify who that God was. They couldn't figure out in and of their own power how to connect with or please or serve or enter into a relationship with God, but they knew enough to know there's got to be something. And I say that to say that's exactly the point Matthew's making here, that the wisdom of the world can get you to the same place that it got the wise men where you realize there must be a king. 
But in order to be brought home, in order to find out who that king is, we need something that Scripture calls the wisdom of God. And this is something that makes the belief system known as Christianity so unique. We talked about this on Christmas Eve. We talk about it fairly often here, so I'll be brief, and then we'll move on to the next idea. But the core of every other religion is this idea, and it's repackaged in different ways, but the core of every other religion is this idea that there's something you can do, and there's actually something you have to do to figure out who God is and connect with that God and worship that God and please that God and, and you know, experience the salvation of that God. Just understand, completely in the face of that, what Christianity teaches is that while you and I can arrive at the knowledge that that God is out there, of course we can, because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that God's divine nature and eternal attributes can be clearly seen in what he has made. So we can arrive at the conclusion that there's something out there, there's someone out there, but Christianity further teaches that we could never enter into a life-changing relationship with that God unless he first revealed himself. And Matthew, I say all this to say, Matthew is writing his gospel account to say, guess what? He has. That God that if you think deeply enough, you know is out there somewhere, has revealed himself fully, finally, and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first idea, that the wisdom of the world is incomplete. But the second thing this story is designed to show us is our second idea. It's that number two, the wisdom of the world is superficial. Now, you remember I mentioned earlier that there was a rumor that had spread throughout the ancient world that a king would come out of Judea. Now, a little bit of a geographical history lesson here. Judea was a pretty, it was a decent-sized region. If you took the, the northern and the southern borders of the Dead Sea and basically followed them west until you hit the Mediterranean, that was um, the region known as Judea in Jesus' day. It's a, it's, a, it's a good tract of land. And yet the wise men, when they saw the star, they specifically, out of that whole region, they went very specifically to Jerusalem. And it sort of begs the question, well, why would they do that? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's because Jerusalem was the big city. Jerusalem in that region was the center of influence and power and notoriety. Jerusalem was the place that anybody who was anybody would come from. So that's where they went. But when they went there, they found almost certainly to their surprise that the king that they were looking for could not be found in Jerusalem. Instead, he was found in this kind of backwoods, impoverished, no-name, small town called Bethlehem that was woefully unfit for a king of the magnitude that they were waiting for. Now, what you're seeing here, right at the beginning of Jesus' life, is this deliberate contrast that's being set up between the wisdom of the world, which, you know, prizes things like recognition and status and significance and power and influence and all that, versus the wisdom of God. Right, right from Jesus' entrance into humanity, what you're seeing is that God set up the events of Jesus' life in such a way that they, they, they upend and they, they run completely counterintuitively to the world's conventions. Now, to, to explain exactly what I'm, what I'm going for there, uh, here's what I mean. I think it is absolutely unquestionable that no one has had a greater impact on human history than Jesus Christ. Now, let me walk through that for just a moment here, and you'll see where I'm going. I recently came across an interview 
um, where Ben Shapiro, maybe you know that name, he was being interviewed, and I'm, I'm about 99% sure it was Joe Rogan who was interviewing him. And they got talking about Jesus. Ben, ben Shapiro is a, is a Jewish man. And so he was being asked what his views were on Jesus. And he said, yeah, we don't believe that he's divine or that he was resurrected or anything like that. And so I think it was Joe Rogan, the interviewer, that said, all right, well, then, you know, what happened to him? You know, if you don't believe that he came back to life or that he was Messiah, like, how do you interpret the, the events in his life? And he said, well, I, you know, basically he was, I'm paraphrasing here, he was a troublemaker and a revolutionary that kicked up enough dust and got himself in trouble with the powers that be. And so they made an example of him. To me, that is a woefully inadequate understanding of Jesus, and to explain why, let me just offer you this. There are a whole lot of people throughout human history that have, you know, acted as a revolutionary and kicked up a whole lot of dust and gotten themselves in trouble with the powers that be in their day and were made a public example of, but none of them have a fraction of the influence on human history that Jesus Christ has had. Right, here we are 2,000 years after Jesus' death, and every year, billions of people are still celebrating his birth, his death, his resurrection. Time itself revolves around Jesus. Literally, the way that humanity records time, we split it into two halves. Stuff we did before Jesus, B.C., before Christ, stuff we've been doing since, A.D., Anno Domini, a Latin phrase, in the year of our Lord. This is why H.G. Wells, I always love this quote, H.G. Wells, a famous historian, he said, I'm a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. <clears throat> Having said all that, let me ask you a question. What if you wanted to have the impact globally that Jesus had? Uh, what if your New Year's resolution was to have people worshiping you and studying your teachings and evangelizing, telling other people that they should do the same thing 2,000 years after your death? Imagine that's your goal for your life, and you paid a team of experts to do some research to tell you what you needed to do in order to, to accomplish your goal and so they go and, and they take as much time as they need to do their research on your dime and they come back to you and imagine this is what they told you. All right, first and foremost, you're going to want to be conceived out of wedlock to a poor teenager. You're going to want to spend the first 30 years of your life in total obscurity. Whatever you do, don't get married, don't have kids, don't get an education, don't hold a political office, don't write any books, and do not network with any powerful or influential people that can actually help you out in any meaningful way. And oh, by the way, and this part's important, at the end of your life, when it starts to look like your career might finally be starting to take off, you're going to want to get publicly executed in the most humiliating way possible because you were betrayed by somebody that you invested your life in, okay? If you paid a team of experts to tell you how to change the planet 2,000 years from now, and that's what they gave you, you would want your money back, among other things. However, obviously, what I just gave you was the resume of Jesus Christ. I say this to make the point, everything about Jesus, from his devastating, catastrophic end at Calvary to his humble, inauspicious beginning in Bethlehem, completely runs counterintuitive to the conventional understanding of, of the wisdom of the world, specifically the way that we think about power and influence. So before I, I move on to our final idea, let me just ask the question, what's the application of this? 
Right? We understand that, that everything about Jesus' life kind of challenges our value system, the way we do things. What's the application of this idea? Think of it this way. Imagine if the wise men had, had gone through the trouble of making this journey from wherever they were to Jerusalem. But once they got there and they found out, okay, Jesus is in Bethlehem, they refused to make the journey. They refused to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem because that was beneath them or that was, you know, it just, it was too outside the box. It confounded their understanding of the way that things were done, of the way that things worked in this world. What would have happened, obviously, is they would have completely missed out on a life-changing encounter with God and they would have never found what they were looking for. I share this with you to make this point. This story, if, if you sit in it long enough, if, if, if you really study this, the question that this passage is designed to get the reader to ask is, and I'll make this personal for you, are you so focused on Jerusalem that you're missing what God's doing in Bethlehem? Here's what I mean, just to, to really try to bring that you know, to ground level as much as I can. If we got honest with ourselves, and I'd ask you to just take a moment here and search yourself, If we got honest with ourselves, I think most of us can admit that we spend most of our lives, an embarrassing amount of our lives, being upset or anxious or worried or angry uh, and frustrated and bitter because we're killing ourselves either trying to get our hands on or keep our hands on all of the things that the world says we need to have in order to live a meaningful life. Things like power and status and significance and recognition and control and beauty and all those kinds of things. And what this story is getting across is that that mindset more than anything is what will keep you. That way of life, that value system will keep you from experiencing God in deep and life-changing ways. If we don't eventually allow ourselves to be led away from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, then we'll never experience God like we otherwise could. This is exactly what Paul was getting across when he penned the words in the New Testament, when I am weak, then I am strong, because God's power is made perfect in weakness. The idea there is that the way that it works in God's kingdom, the way that it works in God's economy, his value system, is that so often it's only when he leads us into situations that we would have never chosen for ourselves you know, times of, of loneliness, times of mourning, times of loss, times of weakness where we're brought to the end of ourselves and we feel like we're losing all the things that the world so prizes and teaches us to prize so often. It's only when we allow God to lead us to those places that we experience him in ways that actually change our lives and give us what we're most deeply looking for. So secondly, the wisdom of the world is superficial. But the third idea that I want to leave you with this morning is that the wisdom of the world is unsatisfying. And to explain what I mean with this one, I just want to point out something that uh, maybe you've noticed this before, but I just got to be honest here. Uh, this, This last idea is so obvious that despite the fact that I've heard this story all my life, it has literally never dawned on me until I put this specific teaching together. Here's what we know about the wise men. First off, they had, they had climbed, essentially, the top of the ladder in their day. As wise men, um, they had, they're very well thought of, they're very highly respected, and so their, their positions afforded them a great deal of influence um, and significance and things like that. But the story also makes it plain they weren't just wise, they were uh, kind of unbelievably wealthy, and the story communicates that in two ways. First off, the gifts they laid before Jesus indicated that they had great wealth, But even more than that, 
the journey that they were able to take to find Jesus, just that journey required incredible wealth, which, by the way, commentators will tell you, this wasn't like a, a weekend trip for them. This journey from the east, we know of the kingdoms that were out there, commentators will tell you, this was more than a month-long journey one way that these wise men took, which was an, a really risky thing to do in their day and age. I mean, traveling, traveling on all those kind of desolate desert roads made you subject to attack from thieves and robbers. And also, it was a, it was a risky thing to do professionally simply because being away, vacating your position for as long as they did here would have made it very easy for somebody to come in and kind of steal your throne out from under you. You come back to town and find out the kingdom's not yours anymore. So here's the question that this whole story begs. It's so obvious that I've missed it until literally this week. The question is, why would people as successful as they were, as well thought of, as well respected, as influential, as wealthy and powerful and comfortable and fill in the blank, why would these people risk everything they had in search of a baby. And the only answer that makes any sense is that evidently all the things that they were in possession of had failed to give them what they were really looking for. And so the story of the journey of the wise men placed right at the beginning of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, this story of these wise men that had everything and yet were still searching for something until they found Jesus... This is Matthew's way of beginning his gospel by making this unbelievable claim that until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else will be. Now, the good news at the end of this story, it has a great ending to it because the wise men obviously find what they're looking for because they find Jesus and they don't just admire him or or they don't just give him gifts. Scripture says they worship him. They have a life-changing encounter with the God-man, the boy who was Lord. And I want to, we're almost at the end of our time, I want to begin concluding today and, and really kind of kick off this series just offering to you that you can have the same life-changing encounter with God that these wise men had some 2,000 years ago. Uh, and Paul the Apostle actually tells you exactly how to do it. <clears throat> I want to read a, um, a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which as you'll see in a minute, I am absolutely convinced was written with this specific story in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we read, where is the philosopher? Or literally, where is the wise? It says, where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Now, you cannot convince me that Paul was not thinking of this story in Matthew when he wrote those words because what he's basically saying there is the thesis statement that explains you know, the journey of the wise men. He continues, verse 21, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. We talked about that. The world can't know God through its own wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But listen to what, where Paul goes. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. What Paul is saying here is that if you and I want the wisdom of God to come home to us in a way that actually changes us, changes the way that we live, either 
for the first time or just in a newer, deeper way, what we have to do is go back to the cross. We have to go back to Jesus crucified in our place on our behalf, and we need to stay there until we see the wisdom of God in it. And let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with communion, but I want to, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Where the wisdom of the world, Matthew's showing us here, is incomplete, it can show us that there is a God but cannot reveal who that God is. The wisdom of God as revealed in Jesus on the cross, that is the full revelation. If you want to know who God is and what he's like, there is no better picture in history than Jesus Christ on the cross. Because on the cross, we see that at the very same time, God is so just that he refuses to allow sin to go unpunished, while at the very same time, he is so loving and kind and merciful and compassionate that he was willing to take that punishment on himself so that he could put an end to sin without putting an end to us. Secondly, where the wisdom of the world is superficial, the crucifixion of Jesus shows us that, that the greatest victory in the history of the universe came about through something that at least on the surface to the people who were the eyewitnesses looked like the greatest defeat. The cross, therefore, and I, th there's a chance that this might really help somebody going through something today, so please lean in here. The cross, therefore, is this literal historical reminder that when God leads us through things in life that feel like a crucifixion, when God leads us through things in life that feel like a defeat, that feel like a death, what's actually happening is God is leading us into a position in which we are able now to experience his power in ways that would never otherwise be possible. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, when I'm weak, only then am I strong. But finally, and I'll leave you with this, whereas the wisdom of the world is utterly unsatisfying and will only ever leave us wanting more, the wisdom of God shows us that the satisfaction that we've been looking for all of our lives can finally be found in the Savior who died that we might live. And the more that we go back there and stay there until it changes us, either for the first time or just for the next time, we find the same life-changing reality that those wise men found some 2,000 years ago, which is that Jesus really is the one we've waited for. That's it. And that's all. Let's take communion. We're going to take communion together, and then I'll pray, and we'll dismiss. But before we do that, I want to read this passage of Scripture over us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You can take the bread and the cup. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, please show us everything that you desire to communicate to us when your word says that Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. 
Please make his reality so real to us that it transforms our reality. It transforms our lives. Please help us to see Jesus as the ultimate display of the wisdom of God, of of your wisdom, until he shows us who you are in a way that worldly wisdom never can, until it upends our value system and teaches us that when we are weak, then and only then are we strong. Please help us to see the cross, to go back to the cross and stay there as many times as we need to until we find the satisfaction that we're looking for that this world will never offer and a Savior who called himself the bread of life come to be broken so that broken people could be made whole in him. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week and happy new year.